Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. This episode is part two of our live event, which happened on November 13th, 2019 in downtown Los Angeles. This is the question and answer portion of our event. Thank you for listening. So we're going to start the Q&A. So if everyone wants to take their seats and we'll start. Uh, cool. Yeah, I'll start. Hey, how you doing? Um, so we're going to get a little nerdy on this one. Um, I've got like the best minds in Blade Runner, like in one room. So a couple things that just drive me crazy. And maybe I've missed the explanation somewhere and everything, but they have to do with the pictures. Okay. So there's the one time where he's like looking at the, the Rachel picture, right? And it like slightly moves for a second. And then there's the other time where he's like looking for clues in the Zora picture and he's like zoomed in. And then there's a part where he's like having it move around that literally I see things move as if it's like three dimensional. And I'm like, I don't know if this is like a, some kind of a 3D picture that I don't understand or what. So if you guys can help me with the, what's going on there, that'd be amazing. Um, and then I'm just going to get my other one, and then uh, I'll just throw it in, which is that uh, right after Zora dies, it looks like Leon mouths the word mom. And I was wondering if you guys, if that's not it, if I'm missing. Okay, perfect. So I'll take my answer offline. Thanks. Leon, Brian told me he's muttering he must die. He must die. Um, somewhere online, somebody made a really great like uh, diagram of the room and the mirror and the bounce of the mirror and how it all works. Uh, and it actually does work. Like some people were saying that the reflection's wrong. It's not. Um, I would also say it's technology from the far off distant year of November 2019. <laughs> and you could probably do all kinds of good things with the way light refracts and you know, you can, we can unwarp a curved concave, whatever image that's in the, on the surface of uh, the mirror or the desk or whatever. So that's never, ever bothered me, um, ever. Like even back in 1982, I was like, this is cool. Like that's, that was my only reaction. I think that's probably was Ridley's take on it as well. Cause a lot of times Ridley would just say it's cool. You know, I, I think Joanna's got a good story about how she finally wound up in the photograph. I do. I, you know, they use another woman to put in that photograph. Drove, that drove me nuts, too. And I never understood that, because I, I was around. I could, I could have been, you know, it was a simple... Did Steve Vaughn shoot that photo of that woman? Anyway, there was that woman in that picture when he goes in. And so, again, you know, 25 years later, I reshot that picture. So now I am in there when he cl clicks in there. Part two to that. So yeah, so Joanna came back. We put her in for the the final version of that sequence. But what's interesting, if you look at the deleted and alternate scenes, there's an alternate um, Esper sequence where the aspect ratio of the the Esper is upright, and that is you in that footage in the deleted scenes. But the problem is when the, when the photo comes out, it's complete. It's, it mismatches, mismatches even more than the version that's even in the theatrical and the director or the, the final cut. But on the deleted and alternate scenes, you see it's a completely different device with a different screen and a different animated sequence as it's pushing through the room. But that ends up being you in the deleted scenes. So that's even a stranger thing is that you actually were in it at some point. Um, uh, for those of you who might remember when I was writing for magazines like Cinefix and things like that in American Cinematographer. I'm very technically oriented, both in the photochemical realm of special effects and now digital. But the original way they shot that photo was they had a kind of a, it's difficult to describe it, it was sort of like a primitive motion control setup where they had a track and they had a high-end format camera, a medium format, I think it was, camera, and they had a set built and they were taking stills shot, 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 and they reversed it, shot, 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 and then they composited it. But that didn't work. And so they had to do it all over again in uh, post-production. Hi, thank you all for being here. It's really a fantastic uh, event. Um, I came into Blade Runner through the video game in, in the late 90s. That was actually what, as a 14-year-old, brought me into wanting to see the film, finding it at Blockbuster, reading Paul's book, and just launched everything. 
And so I, I wonder, because it did feature numerous actors, uh, uh, James Hong and others actually showed up in, or in the video game. Um, Joanna, were you approached at all uh, for that? Because I, I, unfortunately you didn't end up in it, but I wondered if you had any involvement in that. And I, I, think, I was not approached about that. Oh, that's horrible. That's horrible. I, it is horrible. <laughs> yeah. um, but but I, then I, again, I, I wasn't on the original poster either, and they put some form on so much later, and it's possibly the worst drawing I've ever seen of myself. And, and I'm just going, oh my God, whose body is that? That's not me. I, and I spoke to the artist and I, I really chewed him out for that. It was a couple of years ago. I said, what on earth were you thinking? But no, and the answer to the question is I was not approached for that. Should have been, would have done it. And I just wondered more broadly, Charlie, to your uh, discussion of, of the, I just wondered about Inside Baseball. Was, was the video game at all a catalyst leading to the final cut, increasing the popularity uh, of Blade Runner at all? Well, I, th I think it, it might have been a bit, and, and I think now especially there's this whole new appreciation of it because it came out again, right, recently, or there's some, it's kind of been revived recently. Um, uh, I, I only played it briefly, so I never got that deep into the game, to be honest, and, I, and it's something I thought I would have jumped right in, but because it wasn't Deckard, it was Deckard-ish, you know, it was like the, the Dash Rendar of, of Deckard. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's fine, you know, I, mean, I, I, think it, I think it definitely has, I love that movies like Blade Runner have so many different sort of like clubs under the umbrella of all fandom. Like everyone has like a little bit of it that they, they love and maybe another group doesn't love it, but they still get it. And the game for me was like that. I, I just never quite got into the game, but I love that people love it. And I'm, I'm actually glad it's kind of been resurrected a bit uh, recently. Um, I, I got to the game when it came out. <laughs> I still have it. I still have the original, and uh, I, I have played it again. I uh, played it, I don't know, about a couple of years ago. And I just remember being struck about all the work that they put into, you know, the backgrounds and, you know, the detail and everything else. And it was, a, for its time, it was a pretty groundbreaking game. But in terms of, like, keeping the overall legacy of Blade Runner alive, well, it's, an, a, it's a small component. But I think, you know, let's face it, it's the film that keeps the Blade Runner legacy alive, in my opinion. I am H.O. Hi, um, I'm John from New York. I flew in for this. Uh, right. to, first of all, just thank the cast of Shoulder, Ryan, for putting together this for us. I knew a year ago I was saying the same thing. I said, there's got to be something that's going to happen in Los Angeles in November 2019. So thank you for putting this all together Thanks for, for coming. Uh, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's fantastic. That seems like an appropriate time for a round of applause. Yeah, for I think so too, actually. <laughs> It's great to see all of you here and to talk to you and talking about not only the film, but Dangerous Days, like one of the best documentaries out there as far as I'm concerned about any film ever, okay? Um, okay, so here's the question I have. It's, I'm, I'm assuming Paul and or Charles can answer this for me. Uh, Charles, you were saying earlier about how, you know, Blade Runner is a film that you can watch over and over again and see something new. So. Quickly, I will tell you that in, I saw it in the theater back in the day at the Sutton Theater in New York, and it was full. It wasn't empty. <laughs> and yeah, and um, I was a fan of uh, the singer Adam Ant, uh, Adam and the Ants. And uh, why am I bringing him up? Well, basically, I'd watched the film maybe 50 times, 60 times, and then the final cut comes out, and I go to the Ziegfeld Theater, and I'm seeing on this big 70 millimeter print, and 15 minutes in, you know, um, Gaff is taking uh, Deckard uh, to see uh, mm -hmm. Captain Bryant, and there's this wide shot, and I see the spiral column there, yeah. and there's a poster of Adam Ant, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. How <laughs> like, I was shocked. I couldn't even get it out to my friend who was next to me. I'm like, it's, you know, and because I'm this huge fan, I have that poster. I own it. That's amazing. It. That's awesome. And, and I'm like, I can't believe, how did I not see this? And I thought to myself, okay, I had a you know a four by six uh, you know print of it from the like the VHS. That's why I missed it. I go home. I play the tape. I cue it up. Fifteen minutes in, it's even more obvious in that one because it's <laughs> it's still in the frame in the center. So, my question is, what? How did it get there? Whose decision was it? And why was it cool with Ridley? Because I'm sure he must have known about that. I, I mean, maybe we'll talk about specifically about that poster. About but that I, poster. I, but I, think, I mean, I know, have the photo right here. Sure, sure. No, I, I've seen it. Um, uh, in, in general, it was Larry Paul and David Snyder and, and, uh, and um, 
Tom Sothwell and like that, those guys were just like peppering the background with every possible little detail. Right. I mean, if you look, there's some actually really inappropriate stuff in a couple of shots. Like there's, there's some, I, I don't know if I should say this, there's some borderline illegal stuff in some shots. Right. And, uh, and it shocks me. And, and, and frankly, that didn't even come up during the final cut process to say, should we maybe cover that up a little right, bit? Right, right. Um, but um, I think it was just a matter of Ridley saying, you know, fill this world with as much visual information and sort of like texture so that you believe it's a, it's a living, breathing world that's been there a while, that's grown into this animal, you know, right. and that, that Adam Ant poster is, is like that. And, and I had a similar situation uh, discovering a poster um, in the movie Superman 3, when <laughs> Superman uh, is fighting Clark Kent in the junkyard, right behind Clark Kent is a poster of Blade Runner. Wow. And I'm thinking Superman 3 now has proven that Blade Runner is just a movie, which really pisses me <laughs> off. So, oh, sorry. Um, and, you know, there's a weird, uh, what is it, six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing? I'm right. sure you know that Ridley directed an Adam Adamant Lives that was a, a English uh, sort of, a, it was, he was like a Victorian dandy who was resurrected uh, after being frozen and becomes like this eccentric detective. It was a really popular show in England in the 60s yes. and really directed one of those. That was right. one of his first directorial things. So, yeah, no, so thank you for that. So basically it was one of the two set directors who had decided that, but you don't know who or why it's there. It's just... Anyway, it, it was great, and actually, there's a there's a whole like new wave punk rock vibe throughout yeah, exactly. the film. Anyway, so I'm sure they said, "Oh, that looks cool. Let's yeah. put it up there." I mean, sometimes it's just because it looks right, not because yeah. there's a story behind it or right. he's trying to connect to something. It right. just it looks great, you know. And in the Sid Mead uh, interview, when he's walking along the the set, when he stops at one point, you could see it behind him. And then I just realized it literally the other day. There's a second poster of Adamant just below him. Wow. And I thought, what like. There's somebody who's a fan of his. Uh, had to be. I just, I don't know, you know, it's just crazy. Anyway, thank you. Sure. Because I love Adam and I love the, uh, the movie. And by the way, just a fun fact for all of you, because I'm an Adam Ant fan, he actually quotes Blade Runner in uh, a song called Razor Keen. It's an album track from Viva La Rock. He had, at the time, I thought to myself, oh, okay, there's some connection there. He knew. Somebody must have told him. I met him. I told him about it. He had no clue in 85 that that poster was in there. He found out later from me, actually. So wow. there it is. There you <laughs> That's go. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. You're on to something. I'm Adam McDaniel. I want to thank you all for being a part of this and for helping to preserve the legacy of this film. I saw the film, I think, when it showed on TV on uh, Spotlight when I was like nine years old. I didn't understand it, but I was absolutely fascinated and I'm glad that the film has finally gone through a renaissance and it's no longer just a cult film, it's a classic. And uh, I wanted to ask, and maybe, I know, Paul, you addressed this in your book a little bit, but I didn't know if you might be able to expand on it, or Charles, if you might too. You know, the Vangelis score was not officially released until like 10 years after the film. And I know that uh, his doing the score was uh, under time constraints and rather difficult. But uh, I didn't know if you might have any more information on Van Gelis's score, especially the expanded soundtrack some years later, and why on earth did he not do the score for 2049? Well, um, boy, there's a bunch of questions there. Um, Sorry. <laughs> I, I guess, uh, how many lawyers are out there right now? Um, well, part of it, as I say in the book, was that um, uh, there was some contractual post-contractual arguments. Um, while they were mounting Blade Runner, of course, Chariots of Fire came out and Vangelis won the Oscar for Best Soundtrack. And maybe there was just a bit of um, ego involved that suddenly caused things to jam up. But there were also some legal and contractual issues. Uh, and um, they're very complicated, and Charlie can address this, but I tend to shy away from that because the deeper I got into that, the more litigious, <laughs> you know, certain things happen to be. But I know that Vangelis is also a, a kind of an eccentric person, kind of, you know, he's very, you know, um, uh, very solitary. Uh, a lot of that score was done at night 
in his marble arch studio, Nemo studio, I think it was in London. I mean, literally done at night while he watched it. You know, a lot, the, the usual way is to do click tracks or temp tracks where they have a little, you have your orchestra, you have your sound stage, you have your little scene up here where there's like a little grease pencil thing and it goes click and then they play and then click and they stop. Uh, Van Gallus didn't do it that way. He actually played to it, if I'm correct. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he, he, he's a different kind of character. And I also think you have to understand in terms of Blade Runner 2049, um, when people make any kind of sequel, uh, even though they, as, as, as Denis Villeneuve and uh, Hampton and all the people involved in that, Michael Green, were huge Blade Runner fans, uh, it's still their film. And so they, they want to put their own imprint on it, and they don't want to slavishly replicate. And, of course, Denis had already worked with, uh, you know, Johan Johansson before. And uh, I think that they essentially just wanted to do it their way, you know? And, I mean, Vangelis, um, I've heard stories about that. There are probably people who can say yeah or nay better than I, but I've heard that he was sort of tentatively approached. But I don't know whether that's true or not. Um, I spent the better part of a year trying to get Van Gallis to be interviewed for Dangerous Days, and I spent months and months uh, speaking with his lovely manager named Cherry Vanilla, um, who was really delightful. I always loved talking to her, um, and just to say, hey, I'm going to call Cherry Vanilla, that just made me happy. Um, and we talked about it endlessly, about how to get him to sit down for an interview, and he, he finally said, okay, if I use his video crew in Greece... So I would basically fly to Greece, use his guys who I've never worked with, I don't know what their stuff looks like, but I would use that crew to get him to sit down for an interview. So I said, fine, I'll, you know, I'm happy to go to Greece. You know, my life's rough, I'll, I'll go to Greece. Um, and months and months of like, we're gonna do it, we're gonna do it, and finally we ran out of time. But I had an ulterior motive, which was to you know, talk to him and then beg him in some form or fashion, to like, can we do a proper Blade Runner soundtrack release? Um, I love all your, you know, I love your music. I love everything you did in this sort of like this alternate world of Blade Runner music that you created, but there's still no definitive, you know, legally released Blade Runner soundtrack out there. Um, it's gotten closer with each pass, but I, what, what I gathered from it was he just felt it was boring just to like take the, the film music as is, the cues, and just drop them on his disc and put it out. That he wanted to do something special because he, he considers it a special project for him. So. I think it was the artsiness of his brain overriding the business sensibility that everyone else had, like the fans want this, give it to them, and he was trying to dream up some new way to do it every time, so that's why that never quite came out. And Postscript, a couple months after the big box set came out, and Dangerous Days goes out with a tiny little, you know, there's a, there's a bit on Van Gallis, but no interview with him. He does an interview with the New York Times. I'm like... <laughs> Um, he, uh, when I was doing, uh, I, I spent almost two years trying to get to him, and uh, I, I, I got, as Charlie, I had another assistant, an earlier assistant, a male, uh, who was also wonderful, um, but I actually did talk to Van Gillis. He got on the phone with me a couple of times, and he was guarded, and, uh, you know, he used to be a big rock star. There was this thing called Aphrodite's Child that he was part of, and, of course, then there's, you know, John Anderson from Yes, that he, you know, that he has a whole rock star past that people who aren't into soundtracks don't know about. And I got this feeling that he really wanted to stay away from, you know, that, that, that rock star glare. And, uh, and it was interesting because a couple of times in the book he says, well, look, I'll tell you this, but I want you to say in the book that it actually was said by this other person. And I said, I can't do that. And I said, because then it's kind of lying. And he goes, well, he says, then I'll give you some general information. And so that's what we ended up doing. But, but yeah, it was really difficult to get to him, really. And, and to be fair, he did do one thing for us in the final cut, which was because we had to extend the end credits for the final cut credits, uh, he and his guys put together a fully mixed and fully polished extended version of the end credit music with two different alternate punches at the end to how to end it. Um, so it's not, it's not like he said, no, leave me alone, I'm an artist, whatever. It was like he was, you know, he was, it, like there was conversations to be had. It just we never quite got to where we wanted to go. So. Thank you guys again. I'll leave you alone.
Hello, hello, hi. Uh, I just feel like I'm, I'm lucky to be here. I just I threw in a Google search a few weeks ago for Blade Runner of November 2019. I'm like, oh, I gotta be here. So thanks again for throwing this on. Now I gotta really catch up on this podcast. Um, <laughs> still trying to think exactly how I wanna word this question. I mean, it's, it's a brave new world of like digital film restoration and like saving lost films, like starting back with something like the Star Wars Special Edition and then this, the various releases of Blade Runner over the years. You know, we're, we're living in a world where like Orson Welles films are coming out or like just the incredible stuff Criterion does for saving movies. So, I mean, there's no real right or wrong answer to this question. I'm just kind of curious to your kind of thoughts on like the kind of ship of Theseus problem with uh, some of the Blade Runner releases. It's like, is like, is the final cut a 2007 film? Is it a 1982 film? You know, like it's, it's kind of interesting to kind of think of like what the the provenance of a film is, you know, it used to be just a movie just came out and you didn't have a second shot, you know? So I don't know, like, is, uh, is does that make sense at all? <laughs> no, it totally does. Um, that's a great question. Um, and in regards to Star Wars Special Edition, and, and even before the Special Edition, there were changes to Star Wars, you know, they added a new hope to the crawl. And um, I, I think it might have been my friend Darren Docterman who said, uh, didn't you say that a New Hope debuted in 1981. There's like, there before that, it's just Star Wars, right? So is A New Hope a 1981 movie or is it <laughs> yeah. a 1977 movie? Um, my goal with the final cut was basically to fix anything that took you out of the movie. So like Joanna's uh, death through the, through the glass. When I was a kid and I saw the film, it took me out of the movie and people were laughing in the theater because it was so obviously a double. And that was one of my things, like, we have to fix that because it's such a beautiful, dark, tragic moment, so emotional, it had to be fixed. So fortunately, the technology, all the legal delays we had with the film helped in many ways because the technology got better. So her effect shots could actually be convincing. Um, but I, I looked at the Star Wars special editions, and, and I love Star Wars dearly. I'm, I'm an uber Star Wars nerd, I promise you. And... I was in agony watching the special editions for the most part. Not because of, you know, George Lucas wanting to have the final say, which totally his right, but everything took me out of the movie. It's like it, it was like I have a time code in my head of what the film is, and this huge bump would like break that time code, and I'm like, okay, now I'm out of the movie, and I have to think about, do I like this shot of a Ronto walking through the frame, blocking everything, and, I, and this <laughs> droid's flowing over here, and this jaw was like, hanging off, and it's like, do I like that. And I'm out of the movie, I'm out of the universe, I'm out of the story because I'm now thinking about that shot. With Final Cut on Blade Runner, the goal was to, you to never have that, that conversation with yourself as you're watching it. It was meant to be completely smoothly, beautifully integrated into the film, into the story, into the moment. And I think for the most part, we kind of got there in the ballpark, but I, 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 that to me is like, was our number one sort of like philosophy of, uh, on Final Cut was like, just do not take people out of the movie. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, and I connected kind of what you were saying earlier about, uh, you know, uh, uh, being of a younger generation that kind of lives in the post-Blade Runner world. Like, you know, I've, I've seen The Fifth Element and I've seen, you know, Coruscant Star Wars Episode 2. So, like, when I finally got around to seeing Blade Runner, I was like, well, I've kind of seen a lot of this. And, like, it, it didn't initially click. And it was, uh, it was actually after 2049 came out and I realized I was very opinionated about Blade Runner. And I'm like, I, and I just delved hard back into it. So uh, no, I'm glad I'm glad to be part of the fan base, you know. And uh, what, what, where else was I going with that? Just I don't know, just rambling at this point. But, uh, but I just uh, you had, but you really had an interesting question. Isn't it an '82 film or right. is it a 2007 film? For me, it's an '82 film. It's the one that Ridley okay. always wanted to do. I mean, you know, there's been. Uh, you know, one of the joys of the internet is to watch all the conspiracy theories proliferate um, and just the utter nonsense sometimes that you read about. Um, but one of the things that always galled me was that people said, well, all these multiple editions and uh, versions of Blade Runner are being released simply to make money. It's not true. They were slowly trying to get to what Ridley originally intended. And Ridley Scott has one of the most incredibly busy schedules of any human on this planet. And that happened, and the money was there, the deals were all in, in shape, and he finally got a chance to do what he wanted to do in 1982. So for me, it's a 1982 movie. Of course, with 2007 technology and, you know, and tweaks and changes and getting rid of the cables on the spinner and, you know, as it goes up and things like that. But for me, it'll always be the one that I would have loved to have seen when it first came out. 
I mean, if you're restoring a car and you need to find parts that are not from the year that that car is, like, a, you know, 1964 or whatever, and you have to use a part from 1972, it's still a 64 car, I would assume. So I think, yeah, I agree with Paul. It's an 82 film. It just happens to have some parts that are not from 82. Great. Yeah, I appreciate both your responses on that. Thank you. Hey, Murray from San Francisco. I uh, just discovered the podcast, thanks to Daniel. I apologize that I have only heard about 10 of them. So if I'm going to ask Tina <laughs> something now that you've covered, I'll get to it. But um, with our guests here, I wanted to ask this. I told uh, Charlie during the break, I just introduced my nine-year-old daughter to this movie. Um, she gloriously one day later said, what was that about the unicorn? And so we had this great discussion. And like Charlie was saying, this is being passed on from one generation to the next. So that's kind of the headspace that I'm in right now. Um, we talked a little bit about Me Too and the, the Deckard Rachel thing and uh, the scene, and that would be difficult for this for today's audience to see for the first time. That would have probably a much more different reaction. And then Charlie said something about how 2049 is shot with a lot of nice panning shots, not very much handheld stuff. And you can now that you've said that, like, oh my God, of course that's true. And so I'm wondering now, could Hollywood produce the 82 movie the way it does things? Not at all. That's kind of what I want to hear. I, I don't think so. I don't think you could recreate, like Blade Runner 82 today could not be made. There's like, no way. Not only in, the, in terms of the material, but in terms of the technology or the way it, that they shoot things or the way they think no. about movies. Not at all. There's, there's no way to, to, to capture that magic, that lighting in a bottle again because of all the problems the film had, the technological limitations of the film, the grain in the film stock. I mean, there's like a million different things you could point out like there's no way to recreate that and also it's the energy of the set it's the energy of the actors I mean you could to me it is such a beautiful film because it's a time capsule of 2019 and 1982 but like back then nowadays it would be completely overthought overshot it would be I going through the dailies on Blade Runner the original yeah. Blade Runner I learned this beautiful thing which was really captured many scenes from pretty much just one or two angles. Like they were really, like he would do big master shots. Yeah, there'd be inserts of little things here and there, but he captured it with a great economy that now he or any other director would have like eight cameras going that covered, they'd hose down the set with cameras. They would just shoot stuff until, and then figure it out and, and post later. Whereas you have Terry Rawlings who has to actually go up, pull off a can of film. You know, I mean, that whole mindset is completely different to today. So it's just not done that way anymore. And the 82 Blade Runner is an analog production. 2049 is a digital, okay. you know? Yeah, there's people wandering around, but yeah. You know, I mean, no, it's a, uh, Charlie said, lightning in a bottle, happy accidents, you know, like from, from great grief comes great art. Cause as you sure. know, everyone knows that Blade Runner was a bit of a contentious production. And uh, you know, it just all came together. And no, you can't replicate, you can't replicate, <laughs> you know, certain things. But no, I don't think it's possible at all. And why would you? No, no, absolutely. Yeah, I'm why not would suggesting you they should try even. But yeah, exactly. um, a similar question. You've mentioned um, every, like 300 times you said you can keep watching this, you'll see something new every time. It's not true for me that there's any other film I can describe that way besides Blade Runner. And I've discovered that especially recently now that this has all been lit up for me again. Is there one for you? Or are you? That's, that has that many layers that you keep seeing something else or learning something else? The Big Lebowski. <laughs> I never get tired of watching that film because I'll always know there's a little quirk, a little detail, a little, I mean, someone, we're not gonna, I, I'm about to go into like a two hour Lebowski conversation, I'm not gonna do that, I promise. But, I, but someone pointed out to me a shot where there's a character who appears much later in the film and I'm like, it blew my mind that that character was earlier in the film and no one, had, for all these years since, there's like a brand new thing, it hit Reddit, and I'm thinking, wow, that is such a great film that there's always something new to discover, that the Coen brothers just peppered it with so many details in the same way the Blade Runner is just like, there's, there's just so many nooks and crannies and back alleys and little shadows within the frame that you can always discover something new. And we actually had to paint out a couple things uh, because of that, like that we're not supposed to be there in, 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 oh. the, in the film. So, yeah. Interesting. Out of Africa. Oh. I have to go watch both of these again now. The Seventh Seal. Yeah. There's three. Thank you very much. So just a heads up, we have about 10 minutes left of this, so we'll try to keep these moving a little bit. Um, and uh, although your answers are tremendous, let's try to keep it going so we can get a few more in before we have to wrap for the break. Thank you, guys.
my name is Jason. I'll try to make it super short. So I had a quick question on a prop in the original film, the vid phone. There's a shot on the internet with multiple vid phones, different prop designs. Were they ever used in any other film other than the shot that we see Decker making the phone call to Rachel? I, um, I, I think I know what you're talking about, but I think what you're looking at is a kind of a hero prop and stand-in type of thing prop. Um, yeah, no, there was, as I recall, it was just one functional vid phone. And you know, of course, when Sean Young is talking, that was all pre-recorded. And so what Harry, uh, Harrison Ford is doing is he's replying to a recording. But the one that's in Taffy Lewis's bar that's all messed up and, you know. I always, you know, by the way, uh, here's something that has aged uh, at the time when Blade Runner was released and you saw what the cost of the call was, $1.25. That was outrageously expensive in 1982. <laughs> and everyone laughed. Like, and now it's just like, me, You know, it just goes right past people. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you for putting this together. This is awesome. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thank you. My name is Darren. Um, you danced around this question earlier, and I think we need to bring up the replicant in the room. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Here it is. Do you think replica, uh, replicant Deckard is a replicant, or is he a human? Here's my feeling about it. He can't be a replicant, or the film makes no freaking sense. Okay? It's a story about replicants, androids, machines, versus humanity. And you were talking about earlier that the book really makes this, you know, delineation much bigger. That the replicants are, you know, single purpose, they are machines. The movie, however, switches that. It makes the replicants the most human things in the film. And all the human beings are cold and their nature is drained from them much like nature has been drained from the earth. And all the animals are dead, the animal instincts are drained out of human beings, and it's that scene, the rape slash love scene, is this animal instinct breaking free, finally, in Deckard, right? So I think that even though it's uncomfortable, I think that this is sort of a, an important thing for his humanity to break free of the oppression that the world has created. That's an interesting point, but Joe, what do you think? Is he or isn't he? Ridley said he's a replicant. Yeah. He is. He, it was, seriously. I mean, it's been talked about for years. No, I know. It, it's, he's definitively a replicant. That's so it. Real quick. Okay. Just, yeah. And so I'm going to be very quick about yeah, yeah, this one. I was going to suggest, because we'll have time during the break to like get deeper into these questions, sure. and, and it's a good one, and, and certainly it deserves to be talked about. <laughs> right now, we're going to run out of time for I it. Understand. I understand. Briefly. Okay. I'll, my, my take. Hang on a second. I'm going to let Paul go, but what I would like to do real quick is, Joanna just went. I'd like to go through with all six of us and just give a one or two word response. But first, I'll let Paul have his comment. That way, <laughs> we can get one or two word response from Paul. No, to the answer. No, no, I mean to the answer to you as Decker to replicant or not. That way, at least you can get a, a panel answer on. <laughs> I'll that. say the same thing I said in Dangerous Days. Maybe. Okay, Charles. It's going to be a little bit longer, but short. Hampton Fancher has it beautifully stated, which is, it's the question that's interesting. The answer is stupid. And I, I totally, that's my answer. Like, I, I believe in the I go along I, with I, that very much. I love the thought of it. I love thinking about it. I love talking about it with you, but. Yeah. My answer would be, I just think of one scene in 2049 when you see Stellane walking out from the woods in the same curve that they, the unicorn is walking out from the original film. Yes, Deckard is a replicant. My answer is yes, he's both because of the various ways that the film has been edited over time. Uh -huh. And I think that... Um, just like they've been saying, that's kind of the point. Uh, and, and I love the, the beautiful ambivalence of that. Yeah. I'm also a big fan of the ambivalence. I personally do not think that he's a replicant, but I think asking the question is really important. So it's, it, the question it matters a lot more than the answer, I think. And, and, I, and I'll quickly, I've done this before online, but I'll plug Tim Shanahan's book, Philosophy and Blade Runner, because he has a really great spread in there on the 10 points that are brought up the most 
explaining why Deckard is a replicant, and then he refutes all 10 of those nice. points. It really expounds on it, and it's a really intellectual way to think about it, so right. I encourage you to take a look Thank at you. that. Thank you. Harrison so Ford told me a very interesting thing. He said, ambiguity is endlessly fascinating. Certainty is not. Hi, uh, Travis Johnson, Sydney, Australia. Um, also a big Adam hey. Ant fan. That's really weird. Uh, this is something which got touched on earlier, uh, the influence that Blade Runner's had on subsequent science fiction films and that some people come to Blade Runner late think they've seen them all before. And this is a case kind of, to me, of filmmakers uh, imitating a groundbreaking film rather than breaking new ground themselves in what should be an experimental and forward-looking genre. So do you think that the influence of Blade Runner as a film on the genre of science fiction cinema has been a net positive or a negative or a mix? I couldn't hear is it a net positive or a, or a negative? Like the influence of the film in that it's a wonderful film and we all love it and we want to live in it and we're all here for it, but subsequent filmmakers have imitated it rather than doing their own thing. So where do we sit on that one? I, I, think, it's, I, I think it's a reality TV show. <laughs> uh, it's, it's real. I don't know whether it's negative or positive, it's just real. Um, my answer to the other question, which I was just saying what Ridley said about Harrison being a replicant, my answer would be, are we replicants? Um. <laughs> I think, Joanne, I think to clarify, uh, he's asking if over the years overall you think, because we can all agree Blade Runner has been a big influence on subsequent, especially science fiction, cyberpunk, etc., but between the imitation and the other great films that have come, overall, do you think the influence of the original Blade Runner film has been positive or negative on the next 40 years of filmmaking in, in that genre, right? I think that's what he's saying. Yeah, yeah that's, that's it. Well, that's a, that's, that's, a, that's a universal question. I don't know that I have an answer to that. Um, I, you know, films, are, to me, the most important films are films that move people, that make them feel something, uh, whether it's dark or light or, uh, you know, in between. It's something, and it's, it's, it's something visual and encompassing a memory and something that you think about. Uh, with all due respect to the original um, and the incredible and not only cinematic but architectural typography fashion music influence that blade runner has had i'm waiting for the new blade runner you know i think it's time for another one to come along the up end of the uh, wagon you know i mean because like uh, I, I mean homage is you know it's great but after 40 years of homage i think it's really time for us to have something new come along that is the new blade runner uh, yeah, I, I agree completely. I think it's a good thing that Blade Runner exists, to answer your question, because... Oh, yeah. Oh, what's that? Oh, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So I think we're um, but, I, but I think that its impact is, is good as well, because it inspired so many artists and filmmakers and musicians and writers and actors to explore that type of storytelling and that, that type of world-building, more importantly. And I think that that, is, that outweighs all the copying and all the Xeroxes we've seen of Blade Runner since. Because you can always just file that away. You watch the film, and if the story engages you, but their world building is a copy of Blade Runner, it's like, that's fine. I, I'm not going to like penalize them for that, because they are aut automatically telling you, we're not even going to try. You know, Blade Runner kind of like broke the mold. We're not even going to bother trying to break the mold, because it's been done. In Dangerous Days, I interviewed a variety of directors who were inspired by Blade Runner, and one of them was uh, Mark Romanek, who's a really super famous, talented music video director. And um, I asked him, I said, We've seen the clean, sterile futures of 2001 and Star Trek. We've seen the dystopian, grungy, used future of, of Blade Runner and Alien, and I guess to some degree Star Wars. And I said, is there another future that we, between those two extremes? Or is there a third future we've not seen yet? And he said, well, if I knew that, I wouldn't be telling you. <laughs> so where's that filmmaker that is going to give us that non-clean, or that, that not the clean version, not the dirty version, what is this other future? And we've seen hints of it with like Her or Matrix or things like that, um, where the ideas are more important than the, than the designs. The designs are still pretty cool, but those, like to me, 2001 and, and Blade Runner are these just two, just like, you know, flashpoints of amazing design 
uh, philosophy and world building and, and just an explosion of imagination that I'm glad that they happen and I'm glad that the ripples of that hit other films and you don't have to like penalize them because they're, they're copying. It's a, you know, it's good. Thank you. Yeah, we're gonna make this the last question. Hey guys, um, thanks for being here. Thanks for putting this together. Two questions. The first one's about 2049. Uh, when I first saw it, I interpreted it more as like a love letter to the first film rather than a sequel because there were elements in it, sure, that were similar, but the filmmaking style, of course, was very different. Like um, the elements from, I think his name is Hampton Francher, the guy who wrote the first script. Hampton Francher, yeah. Yeah, so those elements were in 2049, and there were other like little moments that hinted at the first movie or ideas about it. So I'm curious about your interpretations of 2049. Do you see it as a love letter to the film, the first film? Do you see it as a sequel? Do you see it as a separate movie? What's your interpretation? I'll, I'll just say I have to recuse myself on this one. <laughs> um, and maybe down the road I'll, I'll have an answer to that. Or maybe, yeah, I just, it, it yeah. <laughs> I am an, you know, from the beginning, I have been an un, 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 unabashed supporter of 2049. I love 2049. I really do. I really do. There are people who will remain nameless who thought that I might be so tied to the first one that I couldn't see the, you know, worth of the second. Not, not at all. I mean, that's a, that's like one of the great, first great science fiction, oh, science fiction, it's one of the great films of the early 21st century as far as I'm concerned. And yes, it's an homage to the first one. Yes, it's a love letter. Yes, it's its own film. But I, I, I'm, I'm tinkering with writing a long essay that gets into, not a book, but getting, because that's already, that's been done and there's other books coming out and being written by people who were there and they're the ones who should be doing it. But I see so much richness in that film. There is so much going on in 2049 on so many different levels. And, uh, and, and on the emotional, the intellectual, uh, there, are, there are so many echoes in 2049 that people haven't picked up yet that are, go back to 2019. And I mean, way beyond the eye that opens up the film and, you know, the opening that was originally supposed to be one of the unused. I mean, there are, there are tons of things that are very cleverly and very subtly inserted in 2049 that echo 2019 that I haven't seen people discuss yet. And so I find it endlessly fascinating. I love the film. I also find it it's heartbreaking. I find it one of the saddest. It is. It captures at least it captures the melancholy of the first one. You know, I mean, not only just the death of Kay, but that final shot of Deckard finally getting his daughter, and what is he separated from a glass wall? You know, I mean, there's so much right there, and just that horrible scene when Kay, beaten, humiliated, finally goes walking down that you know drizzly ramp and sees that giant you know pink joy and uh, all she's doing is being you know a sexualized version of what he was I mean what she was and then she calls him by name which is one of the most horrifying things in the whole movie and Brian Gosling's performance in that moment you see it in his eyes that's the moment when he turns and he says enough you know I mean I could go on and on I'm a big fan of the film I love it sorry a little PS on that so a friend of mine spoke with Denis Villeneuve, who I think is a fantastic director. I mean, I, I love his movies. He's incredibly talented. But a friend of mine spoke with Denis Villeneuve about two months before 2049 opened. And he asked him, so how's it turning out? How's it, how's it coming? And Denis apparently said, I wish I could just call it 2049. And that I totally relate to. It's like, if that film had just come out as 2049 and just kind of like a little bit of the Blade Runner of it, magnificent film. That's That's... Again, it's a two-hour conversation we can have later, but I, I think the artistry and the, and the soulfulness of that film is definitely there. Its connection to the original is where I get a little weird about, so I apologize. Um, I, there is, uh, I spoke to Denis uh, for about two hours uh, prior to the release of the film, and it's in the edition uh, that's coming out. And he was a hardcore Blade Runner fan, and he said he was about 14 in a little French-Canadian town, 
where the snows were so thick that he had six to seven foot snowdrifts on his house for six to seven months out of the winter. And there was nothing to do. And that film rocked his world upside down. And he is a stone-cold Blade Runner fan. So although I understand him wanting to have a proprietary interest in just calling it 2049, believe me, he is a Blade Runner fan. And it came across not only in the conversation, but in the explicitness and the references. And, you know, uh, I sent him a copy of uh, Future Noir, and uh, I inscribed something that I thought was rather personal. I got an instant email back from him that was so kind. And uh, it was from one Blade Runner fan to another. So I might take exception to the fact that it was only... He, that he was emotionally distant from the first one, because I think he really, truly loves the first one. Well, I didn't say he didn't. <laughs> um, okay, when he said he wished he'd call it 2049, it's not that he didn't like the Blade Runner part of it, it was just that it's its own unique thing. That's all. It's like his movie is its own thing. He created a world of his own vision. That's it. So it's like nothing to do with, oh, I want to distance myself from Blade Runner. It was just like, Ridley made his film, I made my film, that's it. And probably not to like have to be compared to the first film, because that's, that's going to happen no matter what. Yeah. I stand corrected. <laughs> you had a One short second question. part? Yeah, okay. so about the influence of the movie, obviously there are tons of movies influenced by, by Blade Runner, so I'm curious for each of you, what is your favorite Blade Runner influenced movie that's come out since? I mean, you mean out of the 8,750,614 yes. of one. them? Um, <laughs> do you have one? Yeah, I, I do. Um, and it's probably not one you might think of, but it's, it's Spike Jonze's Her. I think Her is a great post-Blade Runner film um, because it's about our relationship with technology. It's about love between humans and, and AI. It's, it's very Blade Runner-y without the eye candy, and which is, I mean, by the way, her has a really cool future as well, but I think that uh, that is a really great counterpart to Blade Runner, more than the cyberpunky stuff like Ghost in the Shell or whatever, like, that's very obvious, like, they, they love Blade Runner, and they're gonna do their take on it, their riff on Blade Runner. Her was unique and original, and had a great voice, and by the way, it has a scene where the main character is using a surrogate to have sex with AI, which, wow, did 24-9 have that scene as well, so... There is a connection uh, there, is, you know, but I, I think that's my, my vote for that. Cool. Do you have one? You know, I, I don't know that I have a film that, that has influenced fashion and schools. I mean, they should, you know, Blade Runner's been shown for years in college and colleges and high schools and film schools. Um, and I'm really trying to think, I, I mean, Plus the the music it was such a combination of everything. I, I I honestly I wish I had an answer for you, but I can't think of one that has had all those qualities all together that has blown out into the world. I I always have this trouble because people I I I'm still I I see usually well I didn't last night because I was exhausted, but I usually literally see a movie a day somehow, right? And I, I, w I was in Liverpool, and I went and saw Dr. Sleep. I walked through the world's worst rainstorm and just sat down and watched the movie that supposedly no one else in the world is watching, and I kind of liked it. Um, but um, as far as the influence goes, uh, two that strike, uh, come to mind, and I'm sure if I thought about it more, I could come. Um, I do actually like the original anime, Ghost in the Shell, because it does echo a lot of the same concerns about, you know, humanity and, you know, like uh, uh, transplanting someone's personality into a cybernetic body, which is kind of a flip on the original. And, of course, the, you know, the beautiful graphics. But Akira, Akira to me is like, you know, one of the great, you know, Blade Runner ripoffs, you know. Although, um, having done a lot of business in Japan, as I did over the years, uh, when I was producing for television over there, I was lucky enough to be able to get all the mangas. And, the, you know, the mangas are like, there's, there's a whole library of the Akiras. And so I was following those. And um, I, I've always been aware of what's out there. But it's very hard for me. It's like saying, what's your favorite movie? I can't tell you. I can tell you. Then I'd have to say, give me a director, give me a country, give me a subgenre, give me, you know. But uh, those are two that spring to mind. Right. Oof. I 
ask for yours because I need some recommendations. <laughs> oh, her is really. Have you seen her? I love that movie. Yeah, her it's so yeah, good. I loved her. I saw it too. in the that theater. Was I was the only person there, but it yeah. was so good. But hers a little spooky though too. It's yeah. Well, <laughs> that's true. My answer would be her as well. I don't really. Every film that I've seen that mimics Blade Runner, that's all it's doing. I mean, whether it's, um, what's that show on Netflix? Altered Carbon. I just felt like it was just window dressing. That's all it was. Um, I've not seen any film that even resembles Blade Runner that's good. My answer, uh, I, I'm thinking, what are movies that have, that go beyond kind of aesthetic similarities to the film? And part of what I think works about Blade Runner makes it so um, iconic for, for, for me is that it uses science fiction as a vessel to simultaneously address really large, deep concepts about what it means to be alive and to be human through the lens of a very personal story that would exist as a successful narrative without science fiction. But then having the added bonus of this sci-fi vehicle that makes it kind of indelible. So a recent film that doesn't look like Blade Runner, but that I think uh, hits me in a kind of a similar place is Ad Astra, which I think is just an extraordinary film. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting because thematically it's not that similar to, to Blade Runner, but it takes a very personal journey that goes in interesting ways and interesting directions to tell a story that is, uh, I'm still processing philosophically as I move away from it in time. It's a great movie. Sounded like you wanted recommendations, so we figured we'd just go through real quick. But Thanks. we do need to close so we can go to break. My answer would be Gattaca and Moon. And obviously that's more on philosophical yeah. terms, but the the question of who am I, am I real, what does it mean to be real, like I, I see those connections, so those would be my two answers. Cool. All right, Thanks. so I think we're going to close on that question, but we can talk We can talk on the floor. We'll have time. Um, so... Uh, like to give a, another warm round of applause to our guests. Thank you for coming. And I'd like to once again give a warm round of applause to our hosts. find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.